Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. It's a pleasure to be here with you all and a pleasure to welcome our our first guest who's uh, speaking, Father Carter Griffin. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington, studied in Rome, and has dedicated a good portion of his priesthood to uh, priestly formation. And most recently, he is the rector of the St. John Paul II Seminary right here in Washington, D.C., and he has written and published books on the topic of celibacy and spiritual uh, fatherhood. So it's a pleasure to welcome Father Carter Griffin. Thank you very much, Father Siriaco. It's a great honor for me to be here uh, and to speak on this topic of priestly uh, celibacy in the life of the priest. And I'd like to begin with uh, a story that is told in, a, in an article that came out uh, near the end of the Second Vatican Council in Time magazine. And the article is on uh, priestly celibacy. It's not entirely favorable, an article. Uh, and it starts with this story about Pope John XXIII, of course, the, uh, the Pope at the convening of the Second Vatican Council, having a discussion with the Catholic philosopher Etienne Gilson. And maybe you've heard the story before. They're discussing the difficulties that many priests were having with, uh, with living their celibacy. And Gilson later writes about this experience, this uh, episode with the Holy Father. And he wrote this. It says, the Pope's face became gloomy, darkened by a rising inner cloud. Then the Pope added in a violent tone, almost a cry, for some of them it is a martyrdom. Yes, a sort of martyrdom. It seems to me that sometimes I hear a sort of moan, as if many voices were asking the church for liberation from the burden. What can I do? Ecclesiastical celibacy is not a dogma. It is not imposed in the scriptures. How simple it would be. We take up a pen, sign an act, and priests who so desire can marry tomorrow. But this is impossible, he continued. Celibacy is a sacrifice which the church has imposed upon herself freely, generously, and heroically. These voices for liberation from the burden, as, the, as Pope John XXIII said, have not diminished. Uh, if anything, they've grown in intensity. To many, celibacy is seen as <clears throat> inhuman or unnatural, maybe even dangerous, because it fosters sexual repression. In the church, many call, call for an easing of the requirement because they feel that it leads perhaps to the sex abuse crisis. It's said to be detrimental to vocations, to foster a culture of secrecy, to isolate priests from their people. There's one group that, interestingly, maybe ironically, actually doesn't share this opinion, which tends to be the priests themselves. Study after study shows that priests are deeply satisfied with their life, actually at rates far, far higher than, than uh, lay people, the equivalent, and that the vast majority, especially of younger clergy, support keeping the celibate requirement. So why is that? 
Why, in the face of so much pressure, has the church over and over again chosen the sacrifice of celibacy, as John XXIII said, freely, generously, heroically? The Jesuit theologian Jean Gallot believed that this unexpected determination of the Latin rite to retain celibacy can only be explained supernaturally. This is what he writes. Does the exalted ideal of celibacy continue to gain strength in spite of a human nature slanted in the opposite direction? Severe crises occurred. In certain periods, the 15th century in particular, the majority of clerics transgressed the law, so much so that the abrogation of it was pleaded for. But the law was upheld, and the authority of the church took pains to devise means to ensure a better compliance with it. In this supernatural ascent, we must recognize the Holy Spirit at work. He imparts an ever keener understanding of what the gospel calls the priesthood to be. I believe with Father Gallo that the church's stubborn defense of celibacy, even in the teeth of great opposition, is the work of the Holy Spirit. In the church's adherence to priestly celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the Lord teaches us important lessons about the priesthood itself. So what are those lessons? What is it about celibacy, about the graces that it confers, that reveals how priests can live it more fruitfully? So briefly, I'd like to sketch three fruits of celibacy, three blessings that priestly celibacy, when it's well-lived, bestows, one to, the one to the world at large, one to the church as the bride of Christ, and one to the people of God. And these are certainly not exhaustive. But by reflecting on each of these in turn, I think we can draw some conclusions about living celibacy well in the life of a priest. So first, celibacy's blessing to the world at large. Many of our contemporaries are caught, they're drowning uh, in the grip of a suffocating materialism. To them, celibacy is a powerful witness of the transcendent, a rebellion against the shallowness of modernity. Celibacy for the kingdom only makes sense if there's a kingdom, and a kingdom only makes sense if there's a king. To put it bluntly, the celibate priest has publicly, visibly staked his life, his future, his very happiness on the fact that God exists. As uh, Professor Christopher Ruddy, who may still be here, I saw him earlier, once commented in a conversation to me uh, a couple years ago, he said, there's nothing else that says there's something else like celibacy. Right? Which is, <laughs> I remember saying that or not, but <laughs> the celibate priest's life, moreover, challenges a central tenet of the sexual revolution, that sexual activity is essential to a thriving human life. Malcolm Muggeridge said it best. He said, sex is the mysticism of materialism and the only possible religion in a materialistic society. In a world like ours that is awash in erotic commercialization, Celibacy seems impossible, self-mutilating. A healthy, joyful, purposeful, thriving celibate life puts a lie to that claim. It reminds the men and women of our time that a flourishing human life is not measured by sexual experience or by mere pleasure. It reminds us that we are made for more. It reminds us that our dignity as sons and daughters of God surpasses arguably even that of the angels and that far higher goods are our birthright, and nobody has to settle for anything less.
To take the point one step further, celibacy is a witness to the beauty and dignity of marriage, which has been so misunderstood and devalued in recent years. Marriage is the fundamental human community, the nucleus of the whole human family, the source of the next generation. And for Christians, as Mother Mary Christa said so beautifully just a few minutes ago, the clearest echo of the love that Christ has for his church. The celibate priest, precisely in the sacrifice of that great good, for even greater good, affirms the nobility of marriage itself. One does not offer trifles to God. It's a timely reminder to a world that has forgotten the importance and the fragility of marriage. A second recipient of celibacy's blessing is the church, is the bride of Christ. If the celibate priest is a witness to the wider human community of the dignity of human beings and human love, he's also a witness to the church of her own dignity. St. John Paul II wrote in Pastoris del Bovobis that the church, as the spouse of Jesus Christ, wishes to be loved by the priest in the total and exclusive manner in which Jesus Christ, her head and spouse, loved her. The deepest desire of his bride, like any bride, is to be loved unconditionally. Commenting on this insight, Cardinal Robert Sara writes this very beautiful reflection on St. John Paul II's words. He says, this statement by St. John Paul II is of capital importance. It holds up celibacy as a need of the church. The church needs men who love with the very love of Christ the bridegroom. Without the presence of the celibate priest, the church can no longer become aware that she is the bride of Christ. Priestly celibacy, far from being merely an ascetical discipline, is necessary to the identity of the church. You can say that the church would no longer understand herself if she were no longer loved totally by celibate priests who sacramentally represent Christ the bridegroom. Cardinal uh, Gianfranco Gerlanda, in his contribution last year at the symposium, said something similar. He said, the law of celibacy is not presented as a mere disciplinary disposition of the church. It finds its deepest motivation in the conformation of the priest to Christ the head and the spouse of the church, which, for this reason, is loved in a way similar to how it is loved by Christ, in a total and exclusive way. And Father Emilio Justo also echoed the theme last year, celibacy is not an accident of priestly life, he said. It has to do with the understanding of what the church is and what the ordained ministry means within it. And he continues, the, the ordained minister unites himself to the church and surrenders himself totally to serving it. This full self-surrender is spousal in its form, and it implies a type of exclusivity. For this reason, the celibate life is the most adequate expression of commitment to the church and the pastoral mission of building up the Christian community. So obviously we can't say that celibacy is essential to the priesthood, since there are ordained married priests in the Eastern churches and even in the Latin rite. It can be said, I think, that celibacy is inseparable from the priesthood, because every priest, share, every priest shares in the one celibate priesthood of our Lord. Priestly celibacy is the most complete way that a man shares in our Lord's single-hearted devotion to his bride. Though not essential to the priesthood, then, I think we can say that celibacy is normative. And that normativity has driven the church's determination 
to preserve this difficult teaching through the centuries. She has recognized, with the intuition of faith, that the celibate priest is a pledge of her own spousal dignity. These graces of celibacy to the world at large and to the church as the bride of Christ are complemented by a third grace, and this one to the people of God, through the priest's own pastoral ministry. It is sometimes thought, probably to not many people in this room, but to many others, that celibacy is a denial or a sacrifice of human love, and nothing, as we know, is further from the truth. In reality, celibacy is a way of living chastity that, through a supernatural grace, dilates the heart and opens it to all souls. The celibate priest does not renounce love, Father Justo said at the symposium. He loves in a different way from married people. Celibacy is a way of loving in which there is true human fulfillment and a true expression of sexuality. The Second Vatican Council described celibacy as a sign and stimulus for pastoral charity and a source of spiritual fruitfulness in the world and renders the priest better fitted for a broader acceptance of fatherhood in Christ. No discussion about the graces of celibacy would be complete without referring to the spiritual paternity that celibacy helps to make possible. Forgoing marriage is not about unburdening ourselves from the demands of family life so that we can have more time for our priestly duties. You know, during the COVID pandemic, there's this young priest, and he found his outward apostolate, like all of us, uh, severely curtailed. And like many priests, he felt a little bit helpless. His days kind of fruitless. And he said something very interesting at that point. At that moment, he said, I realized that my celibacy was never about having more meetings. <laughs> When it's lived well, celibacy changes the whole way that a priest approaches his ministry. In the same way, I think that many young men holding their child for the first time, it changes everything about the way they look at, at their work, at the way they look at their family, at the way they look at their own lives and their purpose in life. Celibate fatherhood can and should fix our gaze on the people that we are called to serve. It's a privileged way of living supernatural fatherhood that has yielded countless graces to the people of God through the centuries. A little over 100 years ago, there was a young priest named Father Edward Flanagan, and he emigrated to, uh, from Ireland. He emigrated to Omaha, Nebraska, and he small, opened a small home for wayward boys. Uh, he originally called it Boys Home. It was later renamed Boys Town. By the time World War II rolled around, there were thousands of boys, now many of them young men, who had gone through uh, Boys Town and received his radically generous paternal love. 800 of them went off to war. 35 of them lost their lives. Each of those young men named Father Ed Flanagan as his next of kin. He was more a father to them than anyone else had ever been. He was the only father that many of them ever knew. Father Flanagan was honored, officially, as America's number one war dad because 35 of his sons made the ultimate sacrifice for their country. Celibacy is not our gift to God as priests. It is God's gift to the church that he makes through us. 
And you know, our people often appreciate the gift of the celibate priesthood even more than we do. They know that such a man belongs entirely to them. Cardinal Sarah recounts a visit he once made as a young priest to a village in Guinea. They'd gone without the sacraments for a long time. They sustained their faith by reading the scriptures and praying, but they have a tremendous hunger for the Eucharist. And he writes about their unimaginable joy when he celebrated Mass after all those years. And then he continues and he writes this, Allow me to state forcefully and with certainty, I think that if they had ordained married men in each village, the Eucharistic hunger of the faithful would have been extinguished. The people would have been cut off from the joy of receiving another Christ in the priest. For with the instinct of faith, poor people know that a priest who has renounced marriage gives them the gift of all his spousal love. So these three graces, to the world, to the church's bride, to the people of God, I think can help give shape to how celibacy is lived out in the life of the priest. As a witness to the truth of God and the dignity of the human being and marriage and sexuality, the priest is called to a deep authenticity of life. Knowing that he's basically a walking witness to the transcendent, there is always the danger of focusing more on appearances than on the reality. Father Gaspar Hernandez Peludo in a symposium last year warned about the mere outward appearance of virtuous habits, of obedience or obedience or purely formal observance of rules, what the Holy Father calls spiritual worldliness. Without the natural grounding usually afforded by a wife and children, a celibate priest is in greater danger of falling into artificiality, or even worse, a kind of narcissism or clericalism. He must take steps to check those dangers, and I think one of the surest ways for a priest to do that is to foster a culture of strong fraternity among his brother priests. Priestly fraternity, Father Peludo notes, is the first form of pastoral charity. Without honest, deep friendships, friendships in which a man is known and knows others, in which he can be himself without fear of judgment, friendships that foster holiness and sincerity. Without those fraternal relationships, I believe it will be difficult, if not impossible, for a priest to continue living his life as a vibrant witness to the reality, goodness, and love of God. The second grace of celibacy that I mentioned to the church as the bride of Christ calls for a deep and robust interior life. Quoting Pope Francis, Cardinal Girlanda reminds us that priests can be tempted to live priesthood without baptism. In other words, forgetting that our primary vocation is to holiness. And so an interior life nourished by what we all know, the daily celebration of the Holy Sacrifice, Liturgy of the Hours, mental prayer, spiritual reading, Marian devotion, as well as frequent confession, equips the celibate priest to serve the church and to love the church as she deserves. The Bride of Christ wishes to be loved by the priest, to repeat John Paul II, in the total and exclusive manner in which Jesus Christ, her head and spouse, loved her. And the surest way of doing so is for a priest to commit to a pattern of life and regular spiritual practices that make such love possible. And finally, the third grace of celibacy, that which enriches our spiritual paternity, is protected and sustained by the virtue of chastity which keeps our heart free to love the souls entrusted to our care. 
A priest does not forfeit his masculinity in order to love in a celibate manner. Venerable Fulton Sheen once wrote that the church will not ordain a man to his priesthood who has not his vital powers. She wants men who have something to tame. As a result, a priest's ministry is profoundly undermined by unchastity, including solitary acts of unchastity. Not only because they're sinful, they obviously are, but also because they sap the power and vigor of his celibate love. Even compensations that may not be in themselves illicit, attachments to creature comforts and soft living, for example, will slowly infect his ministry with a worldly spirit and diminish the supernatural tone of his life. Having compromised his ideals already, he may start to compromise in his priestly ministry. His preaching can become stale and cliched. He might avoid difficult and unpopular moral teachings. He can lose the savor of beautiful and reverent liturgies and bend liturgical norms to suit his own preferences. His pastoral zeal often wanes. Chastity is a beautiful virtue, a positive, life-giving virtue. It is the power to love well. And celibate chastity is no different. By guarding our heart from all that smothers its capacity to love, all that robs us of wonder and freedom, our heart is unleashed to give itself generously. Authentic, joyful chastity is the key for celibate priests that unlocks the treasure of spiritual paternity that Jesus wishes to bestow on the people he loves so much. As St. John XXIII said, celibacy is a way of life that the church has taken upon herself freely, generously, and heroically. It'd be the simplest thing, as he admitted all those years ago, for the church, for the Pope himself, simply to sign a document and the sacrifice of celibacy would go away. But if we were to do that, or if that were to happen, precious graces would be lost to the world, to the bride of Christ, to the people of God, and I might add to the priests themselves, for whom this way of life, when well-lived, is a stimulus to authentic faith, to deep priestly fraternity, to holiness of life, to pastoral generosity, to purity of heart, and to genuine joy, made possible by faithfully embracing celibacy for the kingdom of heaven. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'm continually inspired. I read your book. I liked it. I'm really inspired by what you you really challenge and and also uh, give real credence to this important topic. But in my ministry with young adult men uh, in college, they're very invested in their degree program. Um, they date. Uh, is there a what would you think would be the best way to say? talk about the gift of celibacy and that, that there's real joy in living it so that maybe more young adult men will not have that be an obstacle or a barrier to discernment for priesthood. Sure, yeah, thank you. I mean, I think the first, uh, I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna sound a little bit trite, but I mean, I think when people are living chastity well, they understand celibacy well. Right? So, I mean, there's something about living that kind of that discipline of, of life that is required by every Christian, right, to live their, whatever their vocation is. And so the more we can form everyone within our priestly ministry in what I think is the, the sort of one of the great hidden 
jewels of kind of the constellation of virtues, which is chastity, which is so often seen as just like a whole bunch of things you can't do. Um, and where it's really like all those things are totally secondary to what it enables you to do, right? To love in this beautiful way. And, and so most of the people probably in a college ministry, for example, a lot of our different ministries are going to be unmarried, you know? And so the, all those folks have to live, you know, chastity in a way that is analogous at least or similar to the way a celibate person does. So the more that are able to live that way and to do so joyfully and to see the, and to see what it does in their hearts and that, you know, I was talking when I was a young priest, I remember this guy coming in and they had been married three or four years, something like that, and they were struggling in their marriage. Both of them had been sexually active before getting married. And I remember him sitting across from me in my office, and he's like bawling. He's crying. He goes, I get it now. Now I understand why I was not supposed to be having sex before marriage, you know, because they're having all these conflicts, and he's, you know, it's just, it, it, by, by holding on to your heart, it, you, you actually are able to give away your heart, you know? Um, and so the more we can form that virtue of chastity, I think that would be one thing. The other thing I would just say is, um, I mean, to talk about and to give the witness of people who are living celibacy in a beautiful way, to bring uh, religious sisters in, you know, or brothers, or, you know, other people who are, you know, lay people who are, are living in a, in a vocation that is celibate in itself, given by the church, you know, diff different ways, and obviously priests, when they see that, I mean, there is something pretty awesome about, you know, seeing a bunch of priests or religious sisters enjoying themselves and enjoying each other's company, in a way that can be extremely attractive to somebody who is who is looking for connections in their life, you know, and so, and then obviously it's a it's a charism, so it's not something that we can give to a young person, but at least it can sort of come alive in a situation like that. Uh, Bishop Doug Lucia from Syracuse, and question I have for you, Father Carter, is the idea though of compensation. I think today what I sometimes discover is that. Um, and I've only been a bishop about four years, so, but I, I find, yes, we, we talk about celibacy, but there's also, uh, if I can say, an underlying theme of compensation, like, um, in fact, sometimes even when it comes to assignments, uh, oh, bishop, uh, yeah, but can we make sure this is all done before I get there, uh, meaning even how the um, rectory set up or the parish is set up. So I don't know if you can just offer a reflection on that, that whole area of almost what I hear my parishioners say uh, sometimes about our young priest or priest sometimes. It's like, well, entitlement. And I think it goes along with that theme of clericalism. Uh, can you maybe give us some idea of like a counterbalance to that? Thank you. Um, yeah, it was interesting you first used the term compensation because... I do think the two, I think they're connected. They're different, but they're connected. Compensation, in a way, the way I see compensation in this context is, you know, somebody offers this sacrifice to the Lord, whatever it might be. In this case, we're talking about celibacy. And then because of that, they sort of feel themselves, you know, entitled, I guess, or, or, or deserving of a compensation of another kind, you know? And I'll joke with the seminarians about, like, you know, the guy's like, well, maybe I'll have a second piece of chocolate cake, you know? I mean, I've, I'm celibate after all, you know, why can't I have, you know, I'll be like, you gave up a beautiful woman and children for a second piece of chocolate cake? Are you? I mean, you're insane, you know? So that's kind of the spirit of compensation. And, but I think what can happen is, because we sort of feel like we, you know, sort of the world owes us something. I mean, look at all we've done for God and everything like that. He ought to be really grateful to me, you know, that I've given up a wife and children. 
and so then you sort of have this sense of like, I am owed all these other things. It may not be the second piece of chocolate cake, it may be the perfect rectory, it may be, you know, whatever it might be that, that sort of will help them feather their nest so they can kind of deal with the sacrifice a little bit better. You know, it's kind of putting padding around the cross. And, um, and so I think that that's, first of all, it needs to just be brought out, you know, like in formation, in, you know, with young clergy or whatever, that this is a temptation, not in an accusatory kind of judgmental way, but just like this is a danger, guys, you know, and we have to be aware of this danger. None of you, none of you gets ordained wanting to be an entitled priest, you know, like everybody starts out with like these great desires to kind of give and, to, you know, and then what happens is just over time, you start to make little compromises here and there. And before you know it, you become the priest who is like impossible to reassign or is impossible to live with, you know, or is impossible as a pastor or, you know what I mean? It's just like, it, that didn't happen the day of their ordination. So like bringing it up, especially earlier, the better, so that there's an awareness of it. And then I think there needs to be, I mean, I think all the stuff that I was mentioning about kind of the interior life, like a big part of the interior life is an examination of conscience. You know, have I become this? You know, I remember I had a spiritual director in the seminary who recommended making a list of all the virtues that you, or the things, that, or the, whatever, the, kind of the qualities of life, including some virtues, but qualities of life that you would like to be in 20 years' time, you know, as a priest. And um, I'm almost at 20 now, so it's kind of interesting, but uh, I, I haven't kept up with very many of them, I guess, in many ways, but, you know, at least I know they're there, you know, and I try to, and then you go, oh, i got to work on this one again, you know, and so there's, there's an objective reference point, and maybe encouraging things like that in the lives, just so that they're growing in their prayer life, and, and the Lord will put it on their hearts, you know, like, you don't, you don't need to behave this way, and, you know. Um, there's no easy answer for it, but I think I'm great, grateful you brought it up because I think it is connected to celibacy. Um, a married man doesn't frankly have the luxury to be that entitled. You know, he's got, there are like objective things like, you know, the wife, <laughs> the, the, the demands of the children and things like that that are just not going to enable him to live with that kind of selfish self-absorption, you know, that entitlement suggests. So we have to be especially careful and kind of compensate for it, like you pointed out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.